Welcome everybody to the Legacy Makers at Work podcast. I'm Phyllis Weiss Hazarow here with my co-host, Liz Stern, and our guest, Stuart Levine. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is especially created for mid-career aspiring leaders and Gen Xers seeking to craft an intentional work legacy despite the pressures of a busy, complex life. So let me introduce our guest. I am delighted to introduce my friend and colleague, Stuart Levine. Stuart has called himself a resolutionary for over 20 years and is the founder of Resolution Works, a consulting training and coaching firm. He teaches for the American Management Association, the consulting team, CEO Space, Vistage, and UCAL. Stuart creates agreement in the most challenging circumstances and helps organizations create human alignment. He began as a lawyer. He served as deputy attorney general in New Jersey and was the managing partner of his own law firm. Stuart currently teaches nationally to many large companies. He wrote, importantly, Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration in 1998, and the Book of Agreement in the co-authored Collaboration 2.0 about virtual collaboration. He more recently curated and edited The Best Lawyer You Can Be, published by the American Bar Association, to which he had me contribute a chapter on innovative mentoring approaches and displaying another talent. I don't want to forget this. He is currently writing one poem a day for his anthology of poetry called Pilgrim's Path, Morning Practice for Seekers. I've known Stuart since we met on June 5th, 1998 at the unfortunately gone City Corp Barnes and Noble in Manhattan, introduced by a, a rising bankruptcy lost star. And this was at his talk and signing of Getting to Resolution, his first book. And he signed my book with the date. So that's how I know the exact date we met. <laughs> You got, me, you got me giggling, Phil. I opened the book to find out, you know, how long ago that was. And that, that dating was a habit I should adopt when I sign books. I haven't put dates. We both are visionaries. So he invited me to Barrett Kohler, his publisher's interactive vision conference event in Vancouver. And we've worked together on books and for the ABA. So here's where I, you know, aside all of that impressive stuff, why I was eager to have him as a guest for our audience here. Clearly, he has been on a journey to his purposeful work legacy for more than 25 years. To him, it came early. And I think he has so much to contribute to legacy makers at work, revealing how he has approached it. So let's start the conversation. So Stuart, thank you, Phyllis, for that great introduction. Stuart, it's such a pleasure to have this opportunity to get your perspective on developing a work legacy and your journey thus far. So how would you define a legacy at work? 
Great. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you very much for inviting me. I'm kind of looking forward to hearing the answers that come out of my own mouth as, as we speak. You know, people often think listening is important. Well, sometimes it's important to listen to yourself, both your external and your internal voices. So I think of, uh, of legacy and work as what is it that you're going to leave behind when you're gone? You know, we all have certain limited number of days uh, on this planet. And uh, ever since I kind of heard the idea of legacy, and I, I think it was somewhere in my early to mid 30s, the idea of what is it that you want to leave behind? And that can be in many, many different forms. It can be in a personal form of a, a family or children, which was not part of this lifetime for me, though I have many nieces and nephews. Uh, and, you know, some step-grandchildren. But the critical thing for me has always been in work. What body of work do I want to leave behind? What what intelligence, you know, wisdom? Um, you know, I, I, I even almost hesitate to use that word describing myself. What wisdom do you want to leave behind for others to share that may benefit uh, other people's lives? I've heard it said that some people are not so smart. They don't get it at all. Some people are smart enough to learn from their own mistakes. And then the really intelligent people can learn from the mistakes of others. I like to think that, you know, the body of work that I'm leaving behind is a result of both thinking and also some of the ways that we stub our toes or shins uh, as we go through life. And hopefully you can avoid those pitfalls for others. Okay, great. So Let's get into how your career evolved. I'm going to throw a lot into this question. Did you have an epiphany at any time to point you in the direction of your legacy? And more importantly, or most importantly, what do you consider your core values and how did they influence your career and how you see your work legacy? Beautiful. Thank you for that question, Phyllis. So I would say that the most critical value that has always driven me is care and concern for other people. Um, I'm going to repeat that, care and concern for other people. I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but that has always been a focus that I've had. And at a certain moment in time, practicing law, uh, I realized that the system that I was operating in really didn't have that level of care and concern for other people. There were too many pieces of dogma, too many processes, too much that got in the way of, of caring for people. And also the, the system at its core was to me much more about protection of property than it was about people. And after about 10 years of, of practicing law in a very traditional way and being very, very active, I did have that epiphany that I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't know what else that I was going to do at that moment in time, but I just knew that I couldn't participate in that system at that moment in time. And when I made that choice, it was before two major movements within the legal profession that I've been part of but that weren't present. And those, those two movements were the whole movement towards uh, 
ADR, alternative dispute resolution, mediation and the like, and also the, the movement of the last four or five years in well-being of attorneys taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So there was no great master plan when I stopped practicing law. I had to kind of figure it out from there. As a matter of fact, I would say that when I stopped practicing law, I was very, very fortunate in that I had a connection through a colleague that I was practicing with whose sister worked for the AT&T system, the Bell system, and they were looking to hire industry specialized marketing people. And I thought that was a great opportunity for me to stay kind of close to the legal profession, but not practice law but also to learn a whole new set of skills and to step into a completely different world. So I was trained in the, in the, in, in the disciplines of business, in uh, technology, uh, in sales. And my job was to take care of lawyers' telephone and in the early stages of technology, technology needs. And I was fortunate enough to have the responsibility for all the major law firms in Philadelphia. So that was kind of an extraordinary uh, education on multiple levels, but it also afforded me the opportunity of doing my own spiritual inquiry, kind of like a, a bit of what they call a walkabout, meaning what I realized was in order to do what was required of me to stay in good standing for my corporate job, it didn't take as much energy as it took to actually operate and run uh, and be present for a full-time law practice. So interesting, a big change, but not leaving law entirely. No, and Phyllis, it was really interesting. It, it, was not, it was not only a big change, but it was also a big change in terms of identity. I always, I always laugh to tell it in a humorous way. When I stopped practicing law, my mother actually said, what am I going to tell my friends that you're doing? <laughs> yeah, mothers or parents uh, have these concerns. You That's know, pretty funny. Not, right, which was not, you know, not atypical, but, you know, having the identity of a lawyer, a lot of things are built into that in terms of how people perceive you. And all and how you perceive yourself. And so it was not it was not an easy transition for many, many years until I was able to establish and figure out what it was that I that I really wanted to do and was really up to in this lifetime. That's awesome. So Stuart, challenges always influence our work and our life paths and the decisions that we make. What were the most determining challenges for you? And were there, or could you share a pivotal moment that encouraged you to change course and pivot and you know, throw in whatever unpredictable events that we all have in life? Well, pivot out of the practice of law, and lawyers will understand this, was asking uh, the attorney on the other side of a very simple civil suit, you know, maybe $10,000 worth you know, whether, whether or not um, I could have an extension of 10 days to answer the complaint. And, you know, in somewhat typical fashion, the guy said that he would have to consult uh, with his client. Or actually, I thought it was atypical that he did that, that he would have to consult with his client. And I just, I just looked at the telephone and I remember saying to myself, and uh, I'll use kinder words, 
because of jerks like you, I can't do this anymore. In other words, it was just such a simple, easy routine request. And the guy was giving me a hard time procedurally. And I just said, no, I can't do this anymore. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And then I started searching for what it was that I wanted to do next. So that was kind of a, a very pivotal moment in time. And then this opportunity came up. And after 10 years of practicing law, I, I had some inkling inside me that there were other horizons that I needed to move into. I mean, in 10 years of practice, you might say I tried everything. Uh, I worked for the government. I was in private practice. I did uh, some corporate work. Uh, I worked in Manhattan for a while. I was looking for uh, a niche within the context of practicing law that I thought we would sustain me for a while. And it wasn't that I was not successful. By my mid-30s, I had kind of realized some lifelong dreams in terms of income, in terms of where I was living, um, in terms of my lifestyle. And I said, this is wonderful, but I can't do this for another 40 or 50 years, however long a career is supposed to be. There are other things that uh, are in store for me, and I need to go find them. That's so important to have that clarity, you know, sometimes that doesn't happen and it, it took a long time, but you had this moment that said, yeah, you know, this is definitely a break. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but I knew that I couldn't continue to do what it was that I was doing. As a matter of fact, to this day, when I, when I see a legal pleading, uh, my eyes get a little blurry. <laughs> that's a good one. You know, that's a confirmation you did. <laughs> yeah. So, with all of your activities, do you consider your primary legacy or purpose or role to be to inspire, to teach, to support, or something else? And how so? Yeah, all of those, all of those things, Phyllis. I had, I had a, you know, and this is kind of a confirmation. I had an extraordinary astrology reading about thirty some odd years ago, and you know, one of the things that it validated was the fact that I, I, uh, I'm a systems thinker and a systems seer. In other words, I see systems and I just want to reinvent them beyond even change, just completely reinventing. And this is really interesting because Stephen Covey Sr., uh, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, wrote a beautiful endorsement for the book, Getting to Resolution. Yeah. And in it, he actually articulated the, the idea that, you know, what the book was about was problem solving. And in many, many ways, I realized that what lawyers do is try to solve clients' problems. But the system is really not designed to do that very well. And so in, in many ways, the books that I've written, the teaching that I've done, the quest to continue to learn how is it I can help people move through problems and challenges, which usually are interpersonal, okay? And it's, it's taken me on a great learning journey of psychology, spirituality, uh, communication skills, all of those pieces, uh, uh, hopefully, 
in the books that I've written are a, a bit of a, a legacy to date. And I say to date very, very consciously because I haven't done much to publicize them yet, but I think the, the greater legacy may end up being my poetry. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And you enjoy that so much. I've read many of your poems. I like your, your use of the word quest. That's a really... Um, that's a really powerful word. So Stuart, we all learn from stories and you're telling some great stories that shape our, our legacies and our lives. Is there a story that clarifies the importance of legacy for you and how you've created a life well-lived? What, what pops up around that is the good fortune I've had, the time I spent with my, my late wife, who I happened to have met in the context of the legal profession. And I had written an article called Silver Foxes and the Art of Resolution. And when I met her, and you know, she was an iconic figure in the legal profession as a headhunter. Her name was uh, Martha Africa, went by the name of Marty. And when we first met, the shorthand story is she looked at me and she said, you're too young to be the silver fox. <laughs> but anyway, the, the context of um, that relationship was real important because what it taught me a lot about was the will to live and the desire to live. Shortly before I met her, she had been told that she had three months to live to get her affairs in order. And she ended up with stage four metastasized cancer. And she ended up living for well over 20 years. Oh. And that's, that's inspirational in terms mm -hmm. of the power uh, that we have in terms of taking care of ourselves, motivating ourselves, but the power of our own intention, the power of our own intention. And really at the time we met, I didn't have as much clarity as I developed about my own life. It was just kind of something that started. And this is interesting. And the other, the other interesting piece of, of, the, of the story, and Phyllis, you mentioned this in, 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 uh, in the introduction when you said res the word resolutionary, resolutionary. I did a bunch of work about identity in the late 1980s and decided that resolving situations was my best work in the world. And I looked back uh, on all of the, the legal cases that I had resolved and, and settled. As a matter of fact, a great story was that when I was working for legal services as a second year law student on a, a, a clinical program, they gave me 25 cases and said, Stuart, this should keep you busy for the semester. And three weeks later, I went back to the head of the program and I asked for more cases. And he said, what did you do with all the cases that we gave you? And I said, well, I resolved them all. <laughs> and they said, how'd you do that? I said, well, I looked at the files and I got a sense of what would be a fair result for everybody. And everybody said, yes. Now, it's really interesting because I didn't know then that I was supposed to be an advocate for one side. So, <laughs> so I, spent, I spent the next 10 years learning how to be a very, very effective advocate and litigant and litigator. And then I completely got so far away from what was my real skill which was problem solving and resolving situations. Anyway, to finish that story, I was doing some coaching work for a client at a moment in time. And that client, and this was about 1990 or 91 when I was done, pointed at me and said, you are a resolutionary. 
And I've had that on my business card ever since. That's great. That's awesome. I thought you came up with that word. No, I wish I did. And that was, that was, you know, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was my good friend, Bill Brown. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great word and a great description. And you know, I love making up words. So yeah. And yes. And the, the thing that I always chuckle about is that without that word, I didn't have to spend a whole lot of money on a branding expert to come up with yeah. <laughs> my right. personal brand. Mm -hmm. right. You got it. Okay, do you think it's more important than ever to think in terms of work legacy by mid-career, you know, which is something we're focusing on in, in this podcast? Why? Is there a time when it's too early or too late? I mean, my thought is the people in their 40s should really start thinking how they want people that they work with to remember them and how, what is your impact on organizations that you work either for or, or with? And, you know, sort of have an outcome that you're going toward, which is a little different than your legacy before you die, although, you know, it could coincide. So here's my, my thinking around that, Zoe's. I think that we spend a whole bunch of time early on, and I and I think you know mid forties is probably a good metric. You know, a little bit later, a little bit earlier for different people. But yeah. we we spend kind of time, and I guess the the metaphor I would use is is climbing a mountain. Okay, mm -hmm. climbing a mountain, and we spend trying to time building professional identity, being known being established in some way, whatever that means, figuring out, you know, how to take care of yourself and how you take care of your family. So that's kind of the early part of the journey. And then at some moment in time, you say, okay, I got there. Mm -hmm. Here I am. Um, and, you know, it happened early for me because I didn't have kids perhaps, and maybe I had some level of, you know, innate skill or talent or understanding of, of how to navigate in the legal world. But then at some point in time, you start thinking uh, a little broader and a little deeper and you start reflecting on life and you become a little bit more introspective. And then you figure out, okay, I need to have some North Star that I'm pointing to that's gonna uh, guide me for the rest of this journey uh, while I'm alive inside of a body. and that's when you need to start thinking about life work, legacy, and what you're going to leave behind. Yeah, I, I love that North, North Star. I mean, I think that's exactly the concept I was trying to explain. Perfect. So Stuart, where are you now in your journey to your, for your work legacy, your life legacy, and do you have next steps? One, even in the context of COVID, I'm having a good time, all right? <laughs> Excellent. That's great. Yeah. Um, I enjoy my work. One of the guiding pieces in some ways is, is, is the idea that, and I can't remember who said this, but people might not remember what you say to them, but they will remember how you made them feel. Maya Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Maya Angelou. Thank you. So, and there's a truth to that. So, you know, that's a bit of a guide day to day, moment to moment. 
yes, there are many next steps. I'm actually, I'm actually uh, working on an e-learning program, which tracks my books about resolving conflict and collaboration. Some of it will be asynchronous so people can partake on their own. Some of it will be facilitated by me. You know, in some ways, I, I often get attracted to shiny objects, meaning what area of new learning can I engage in? I relate. Uh, yes. Uh, and so, you know, I, I perhaps have not spent as much time kind of cultivating, curating, uh, moving that work out into the world. So that's one piece that I'm working on. I'll also start doing some podcasts with guests around that because there's a lot of people that I think I know that have wisdom to offer. Uh, I'm also, and I, I should be done sometime this year. You mentioned that we talked a little bit about poetry earlier. From the year 2000 to 2003, and it all happened spontaneously, I think of myself as kind of an accidental poet. I was doing one page of journaling in the morning and I was on retreat on Whidbey Island, which is interesting. It's where the poet David White lives. It's a beautiful and, place. Yeah, it's a lovely place. And out popped 20 lines of rhyme. And for the next three years, 500 poems came out. Whatever I was noodling, processing, I would write a one word title and out would come 20 plus or minus lines of rhyme. And at the end of three years, I had a pile of notebooks with all these poems and there were about 500 of them. And I just sat them down for about seven or eight years. Then I had them transcribed. Uh, I had them reviewed by a, a poet professor and I've been noodling with them. I've organized them, I've categorized them. I've gotten rid of some of the chaff and uh, I've got 365 poems, one poem for every day of the year with reflective questions. And for the last two years, at the end of kind of a yearly cycle, I thought I was done going into the cycle, but realized that I'm not. But this time I'm done. And so every day I edit one poem and I'll be done with the editing process uh, end of September. And then they will be published in a book and put up on a website. Uh, they're actually up on a website now called pilgrimspath.life, pilgrimspath.life. But some of them are not complete, but they're beautifully illustrated by the guy who built my website. So I'm working on those things. I also have a collection of quotes that I call heartening words that I've been collecting for 25 years. And I'd love to publish those in some form with some commentary about the meaning of those things. And who else knows what else uh, is in store for me. That's awesome. Absolutely. You need a long life, a very long life, and I wish you that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I hope to be around for uh, a while longer. Uh, as long as as long as I'm I'm well physically, the idea of, of you know reaching a hundred is something uh, yeah. that I have that I have an intention. One of my passions also is cooking which is a wonderful creative uh, expression and outlet. So yes, life is good. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So as we're, you know, looking toward wrapping up, I'm sorry, this is so interesting. What tip or takeaway do you want to leave the audience and your followers with today? Or what call to action? Great, so I'm gonna start with a quote from Steve Jobs. 
which I was just fortunate enough that about two weeks ago, I happened to notice it on my girlfriend's uh, <laughs> wall, all right? And it's a great quote. Uh, Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Mm -hmm. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. I think those are very, very powerful words in terms of guiding people. Uh, it's interesting, as I, as I edit my poems and look at them, there's a lot in there about having the courage to listen to your own voice and follow the admonitions uh, and the guidance that are there. Because those inner voices, those quiet inner voices are a reflection of your whole being and your heart without the ego and the intellect kind of analyzing. And, you know, it hasn't always been easy for me to follow my own heart, but I think I had, I had great mentoring from my own father who, because probably because he didn't like his own work that much, always said to me, do what you love, do what you love. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a guiding source as I kind of moved, especially from one area to another, trying to find my way. Somehow we don't always know exactly how all the pieces fit, but the idea of having a little bit of trust uh, in your own intuition is kind of a critical piece of getting to the place where you actually discover what your true legacy uh, is. Yeah. That's awesome. It, it is. And I think I just want to say that in this time of COVID and the pandemic, hopefully a lot of people are really reflecting much more than they did previously and are listening to their own voice or will. I hope that's one of the lessons we get out of this terrible time. Yeah, uh, I agree. I agree with you. I, I was actually just on a, um, on a on a webinar that I was facilitating. And it was, it was based upon the book that you contributed a chapter to about well-being for attorneys, Phyllis. And thank you for your contribution. Um, <laughs> you were but, but, but the idea came out in that when I was kind of closing and summarizing the idea of, you know, using this time in a positive way to do some reflecting, to think about, you know, where we are. I mean, you know, we live, we live in a world that is so incredibly fast paced, contributed to in part by the, the technology that boom, bada boom, bada boom, bada boom, bada boom. But the idea of having a little bit of time for reflection and thoughtfulness is so important. The idea of we are human beings uh, as opposed to human doings. Right. So Stuart, one of the things that I think about all the time and share with my clients and the people that I um, am close to is that I believe that you live your legacy every day. It's how you treat people. And it, and it really does harken back to the Maya Angelou quote you mentioned, um, which is um, an awesome quote. She had so many. So how can listeners reach you? Well, they can, they can reach me through my website, which is resolutionworks.com. Resolution singular, uh, works plural, 
www.mindfulnessfoundation.com. Yeah, we'll um, have them all on, the, on our website too. So. Right. My email address is resolutionworks at msm.com. Great. Thank you so much for, for being with us today and for participating and sharing your story. All the listeners, please go to our, our podcast website, legacymakersatwork.com, where you will find more information and show notes. Also subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review. Thank you.